Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. It's wonderful to see all your faces, some, some familiar faces, and some faces of people I've wanted to meet. Um, you know, a long time ago, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, I worked for a, a very established business. And an opportunity came up for me to earn more money. And the head of the company said to me, Gary, you should do it. All you need is a little confidence. And uh, for all of you who are brand new, um, all, all you need is a little confidence that God can keep you sober and that your life can change. And I hope that um, we can talk about things today that, that will give you that hope and uh, some assurance that somebody loves you. Um, when I came in, I had no hope, absolutely none. I had tried so many things to stop uh, therapists, uh, religious activities, religious education, seminars, books. Um, the United States is about 3,000 miles across from east to west, and I drove 1,000 miles, a third of that, just to see a therapist. I was on my way to the eastern side of the United States, and I thought, this is going to be the answer. This is it. And, and I'm sure it was helpful. I'm sure that he had experience with other sex addicts. But for me, I, I left that city thinking, I'm cured. And within 24 hours, I was back to my lust. So when I came to the program, I had no hope. Um, just a little bit about my life. I, um, I grew up in Los Angeles and in a very large family and in a home that um, had some wonderful things, wonderful aspects to it. But alcohol and, and lust just ravaged our family. And I was... The, the violence in the home was so crazy that I, I just was afraid all the time. Who's, who's going to come home? Who's going to be drunk? Who's going to have a, a, a physical fight with which other member of the family? And I mean, it was very, very severe, and I just was paralyzed with fear. Something else that's significant in, in my early life is sometime between the age of 10 and Maybe I was as young as eight. I was molested by older boys. And uh, that, that was something that I knew I couldn't share with anybody, but I, I wished I could. And it set a pattern for the rest of my life that 
if I had a question or a, a fear or something was really disturbing me, I never could tell anyone. I didn't know where to go for help. I didn't know who cared enough about me to help me. And uh, so I just kept it all inside and tried to be as, um, I don't know, as acceptable as I could be, as, as at ease and at peace on the outside as I could be, because inside I was terrified and alone, very, very alone. I lived in a house with a lot of people, brothers and sisters and my parents, and, and I was very, very isolated. But all of these things just grew over, I'm 70 years old now, and, and these things just continued to grow and demand more and more of my life. And lust began very simply as curiosity with, oh, my friend's older sister or a magazine or an art book that had paintings and things like that. But it, it very quickly evolved into uh, fantasies after reading pornographic uh, literature, stories. And, of course, after I was molested, I learned how to masturbate, and I never could stop. So these things are growing and growing. I'm seeing images, I'm masturbating, and I'm, I have a fantasy life that's just way out of control for a little boy. And all along, I thought different things would help me. Um, I began to be attracted to other boys. I thought, well, if, if I do sports and I do them well, then that's going to go away. Or I thought, you know what, I'll just wait. And when I'm a certain age, all of this will go away because adults couldn't possibly be like I am. And then I was successful at sports and I was in the, I guess you'd call it the premier newspaper of the southern part of our state in Los Angeles. And I saw my name. It didn't fix anything. Nothing changed. And as I got older and older and older, nothing changed. It got worse. It just mounted inside of me like a, like a battle that was raging. So I got into high school, and I attempted to have friendships with other young boys or with girls and dating relationships with girls, but I could not form a partnership or a friendship with anyone. And I, I didn't know that you could. Because I was so isolated, all I did was come out of my isolation, touch base with a human being, and then go back into my isolation. And uh, I found out later in life that all the people I, that were surrounding me were forming relationships where they cared for each other. And they loved each other. They probably loved me and cared about me. But I was too afraid to uh, participate in life. Um, so I, I dated some girls in high school only to uh, involve them in physical activities that um, would satisfy my lust. There was no other relationship. And I did that again later in my late 20s 
Um, but it, all this time, there's lust mounting for men, for other men. And then in my 20s, I discovered that men congregated in places and you could go there and you could have sex. And so this is, this is an, a perfect example of what lust will do. I am molested. I learn how to masturbate. I discover images and written pornography. And, and then it just grows. It just asks for a little bit. Not a lot, just a little bit. A little bit more. And over a period of, of 20 years, I end up having to, and I mean having to, having to have sex two, three, four times a day or a night with strangers in places where men congregate to have sex. And I absolutely couldn't stop. I paid thousands and thousands of dollars to therapists, hoping that they would be able to fix me. And I participated in programs that I thought, oh, this is going to, this is going to fix me. But I just could see that not, I was just getting worse. Any attempt I made or that others made to help me just made the thing worse. I got more entrenched and more isolated in lust. Um, so sometime in, in 1987, I discovered Sexaholics Anonymous. And if, if you do the math, if I got sober in 1987, um, I would have 33 years of sobriety. And I told you I only have 27 years of sobriety. And the reason is that I came into the program and never was sober for six years. I got a lot of chips you know, 30-day chips, 60-day chips, 90-day chips. And it, I slipped so much that one of the old-timers used to call me his favorite slipper. I just couldn't stop. And just sitting in the meeting didn't help. And associating with sober people helped a little bit. But I wasn't taking the right actions. And... I wasn't going anywhere. So after that six-year period, there were two friends that loved me enough to persist in asking me, Gary, would you go to this new meeting? There's a meeting that we'd like to take you to to introduce you to some people that can help you. And I, my pride almost killed me. I... I told them, no, I don't, I don't want to go there. I, I know everything. I'm an, I'm an expert in Sexaholics Anonymous. I, I know everything about this program. What could they possibly tell me? But they persisted because they cared. Now, I need to tell you that neither one of those two are sober. One dropped out of the program, and the other is sort of in and out. But still... I owe my life to those two men. They took me to a meeting where I met people who knew what to do, what actions to take to deal with sexaholism. I thought, wow. So I go to that meeting, and there were 
I don't know, 40 or 50 people in the room. And I came face to face with someone I had known since I got into the program and I hadn't seen him in a while. And this guy was changed. I could tell just by looking at him, I could tell that he had changed and it was remarkable. Instead of being shaking, afraid, uh, full of remorse and guilt, he was, he was standing there calm and reserved and, and focused on me. He's very tall and he's looking down at me and he said, Gary, do you want to be sober? And that's a question I have to answer every day. I answered it yesterday. You know, Gary, do you want to be sober from lust? And I said, yes. And I told this man, you know, 27 years ago, yes. And then he said, would you work with a sponsor? Well, I'd already had three sponsors, but they were crazy. They, were, they had no idea what I needed to do to get sober. But I said, yes. Anyway, I said, yes, I will work with a sponsor. He looked out at this sea of people and he just said, hey, who would work with this guy? And several people indicated they would. And my friend picked one. He just picked a guy. He said, you, come over here, help this guy. He gave me his phone number. His, his name is Matt. He gave me his phone number. And I thought, I know what I have to do with this. I have to call him every day. And, uh, you know, that was the beginning of, of the actions that I took that gave me a new life. We, we, we went through the steps, and I began to realize that I really am powerless over lust. I, nobody had told me that. Hey, look, stop trying to get sober or free from this or walk away from it. Stop it. You need to admit that you're powerless, that you can't do this. And I thought, wow, nobody's ever, no one's ever really made that clear. Because even in the program, people say, hey, you know, you need, to, you need to stop that. Knock that off. And now they're telling me I'm powerless. And I'm hearing it. I, for the first time, I'm hearing it. And I affirm that I believe that God could help me. And I took the second step. But the third step was something new to me because in, in churches or religious experiences, I just didn't do what I did in the third step in SA. In the third step, I gave God permission to do whatever he wanted with my life. He could build anything he wants. He could do anything he wants with my life. And I no longer had the right to complain or feel sorry for myself. Because uh, I, I could drown myself in self-pity. It's very easy for me to do that. Um, but here I am, a hopeless sexaholic, and I've got a few days of sobriety. And these guys are welcoming me into their tight little fellowship. I thought, wow, this... I like this. And my head wasn't clear enough to realize that this is what I've wanted all my life. I wanted my brothers to accept me. None of my brothers ever accepted me at home. And I'm not sure my father did either. 
Um, and, and my sisters were kind of, but, uh, this was just the most amazing experience here. Are men willing to show me how to live life and show me how to be free from this lust thing. Um, so I, I did the fourth step and for the, this is very significant for the first time in my life. I saw that I had really hurt people, you know, maybe people had hurt me. There's nothing I can do about that. But I had really hurt people by the, my unwillingness to forgive, my unwillingness to leave people alone, and my expectation for people to take care of me. And when they didn't, I just got really angry deep down inside. But I didn't know that. I saw it differently. They're wrong. They're causing me problems. All these people around me are my they're the source of my problems. And, and the steps repeatedly showed me that the way I behaved is what caused my problems. And my attitudes were wrong. But having the attitudes that come from the first three steps are remarkable. That I'm powerless. I can't. I can't change myself. I can't manage my life. And there's a God who will help me with my life. He'll restore me to sanity. And I need to turn my life and my will over the care of God as I understand him. What a, what a great invitation. Uh, I said that, that I wanted to talk about love and, and, and hope. Um, I, I love seeing people here who've got long-term sobriety, but I, I like speaking to people who are brand new, absolutely brand new. And I want them to know that there's hope because I'm a hopeless sexaholic and I'm sober today. And uh, the life that I live today is so different. I, I have a, I'm, I'm looking for a job. And so two opportunities presented themselves last week and I explored them, but I didn't want to accept them. And I prayed, I asked people, I said, what am I going to do? How do I navigate this? And this morning I received an email from a, a third company that's very interested. And that's my solution. I, I want to put the other two on hold if they're willing to wait, if they're not willing to wait, they should go ahead and hire someone else. But I want to talk to this third guy. In the past, um, I would have acted out over it. I would have missed appointments. I would have been angry. You know, why can't I do this? Why can't I be the president of the United States? Don't they know who I am? And, and it just, there would have been this crazy, unmanageable uh, accumulation of human emotions in, inside of me. And that's what would have governed my life. But today, my life is governed by a, a loving God. And, you know, I, I want to say something. People ask me, well, Gary, why did you stay for six years if SA didn't work? Well, there's a bunch of reasons. 
Um, one thing is I had no place else to go. I destroyed everything in my life. Another reason is I'm afraid to leave anything. Um, I won't leave an abusive relationship. I won't leave an abusive work situation. I just stay. I just sit down and stay and take it. And I don't think there's any place else to go or that I'm even worthy of moving on or that I can make a decision to move on. So those are the things that I'm aware of. But after I got sober, I received a Federal Express letter. And I opened it, and there was another letter inside. It was hand-addressed to me. And I recognized the handwriting. It was a friend from years and years ago. I opened her letter, and she said, Gary, Mom is dying. Her mother's name was Rachel. She said, Rachel would like to talk to you before she dies. So I immediately called, and they put Rachel on the phone. And we talked and talked and talked. And you have to understand, I have not seen her or had any, any contact with Rachel for um, easily 10, 15 years. And Rachel said to me over the phone, Gary, I had a sense that you were in trouble. I can't explain it, but I had a sense that you were in trouble and I have been praying for you. And I thought, oh my gosh. And I told her, I said, Rachel, I was in trouble. Very, very serious trouble. But some friends have showed me how to get out of that trouble. And I'm sure that you're praying for me was a big, big part of that. You know, things like that never happened when I was acting out. I wouldn't even care if they happened. But I was given many, I've been given many, many gifts. I had 10 years with my father. Um, If she was still alive, I may have had time with my mother where she could see me uh, live life differently. But my brothers and sisters, I have. And even my brother-in-law told me, he said, Gary, you're a great brother-in-law and you've been a great uncle to our kids. Um, And I I don't know what I ever did for their kids except show them a magic trick or help them work on their cars. But that's what I've wanted all my life. I've found in this fellowship what I've wanted, relationships with men who could show me how to live life. Um, Relationships that honor uh, my commitment to leave my life in God's hands. I don't have to be dependent on someone. I can live my life with my own resources and I can be responsible for my life. And I, I don't have fear of economic insecurity, but instead I, I prayed and said, God, show me how to be responsible with what you've given me. And I'll just leave the rest up to you. But if you're here and you want to give up, please don't. Don't leave before um, God can 
can cause the miracle to happen in your life. The only way you can fail at SA is to leave. As long as you're here, there's a chance for you to make it. And uh, I hope my life is a demonstration of what God would do for you. Because he has a lot more to work with, with you, than he did with me. I can guarantee that. But uh, one of the ways that a friend ends at AA meetings is he says, and I'd like to say this to you. If no one said that they love you today, I love you. I'm convinced that God loves you too. And uh, I'd I'd like to just wrap it up there and uh, turn it back to you, Luke. Thank you so much, Gary. I really got a lot out of it. And 11 years ago, I went for three months to Nashville in the United States, Tennessee, and I did three meetings per day there for 90 days. And in the beginning, my sponsor who who lived in Nashville, he whispered in my ear the first day and he said, you will get to know the love of the fellowship here. And I thought, ugh, sentimental crap, love of the fellowship. I don't believe in love. But three months later, I must admit that I experienced the love of the fellowship. And it's this love of the fellowship which, 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 which made a foundation yeah, and which is probably one of the biggest forces that is that is carrying me through in good and bad days. So I can relate a lot to that. So thank you so much. Um, first virtual hand is Odea. Please go ahead, Odea. Hi, I'm Odea Fixaholic. Uh, thank you, Gary, for your uh, share. It was inspiring and uh, it's very exciting me that I can relate like almost every word and like I don't know you um, and it's it's so exciting me that there is a lot of people around the world with my disease and I'm not alone and so thank you uh, and I want to also I just want to uh, want to um, give one comment uh, I, I really relate for the feeling of the loneliness that my disease is always like, um, um, like I, I always felt this loneliness uh, also in my family. And, and when I came to SA and start work the steps, I felt in the first time in my life, like the, the feeling of, uh, we, we came home, like, and I didn't knew before what is home, what, what, what home was. And I think today home, uh, for me mean, mean, uh, safe place, a place that I can be myself and place that I, I know, like, nobody can do for me nothing and like, I want, I want to be honest. I want to lead with my weeks. Uh, one question I would like to ask you is, is what helps you relate your higher power? What helps and what helps you to feel your higher power love? Um, thank you. I, I needed to see myself accurately and correctly. And I couldn't do that without the steps. 
And once I saw a clear picture of who I was or what I was capable of, um, then I was more open to a higher power who would love me. Um, because in my disease and in my pride and blindness, I don't need a higher power. I, I really don't. Because I'm pretty satisfied with the, the way that I play God in my life and other people's lives. So that's one thing. The other is that for the first time in my life, I could see that people loved me. People that I never thought before would love me because I was no longer afraid of them. I was in my car driving north on, the, on a freeway, a very large roadway. And on the radio, they described a family of maybe five children that was abandoned by their parents. They left them in an apartment alone in diapers. And when the police got there, the the children had diaper sores from not being changed. And they had no food. They had nothing. And they were left alone. And I started crying. I thought, you know what? My parents changed my diapers. And my parents came home at night. My parents made sure there was someone in the house all the time. And, and for the first time, I could be grateful for things that I had never been able to see or understand or be grateful for. And also in the program, people loved me. You see, I act out with men. You're not supposed to like me. You're not, you're not supposed No, that's not acceptable. Now, these other sexaholics, they, these other men, they, they're attracted to women, so that's acceptable. But when they loved me and they encouraged me to come out of myself and talk about myself, I was at a meeting of maybe 20 men sitting in a circle, and an old-timer said, you know, I can lust at meetings. And then he said, I've lusted at this meeting. And I looked around and there were only men there. I thought, oh my gosh, you can't say that. And I thought, you know what? If these guys love me, I can say that. And apparently the things that I thought were such big deals, such barriers and obstacles to love and friendship really aren't those that big a problem. And people love me. So that's how... I hope I've answered your question. I'm anyway. Hey, I'm Buddy. I'm a recovering sexaholic. Thanks, Gary. I identify. Um, I was molested twice as a boy. The second time was by an uncle, and uh, I thought I had caused that. I I felt guilty, um, and it took me. I disconnected. I disconnected from my body, and and it took me. 21 years sexually sober in SA before I even began to reconnect. Uh, when, when Roy talks about we became disconnected, yeah, I, today I understand what that means. Um, the other thing you mentioned was that you felt I don't matter. And I learned early on 
in my head that I mattered, but I never felt in my heart that I mattered. And it, in all honesty, you, the, you ended up by saying, don't quit before the miracle happens. And yeah, don't quit. It took me 21 years before the miracle happened, before I started to reconnect to my body. My wife and I were talking this morning. A friend had committed suicide a week ago. And we talked about why. And I realized the difference was that she felt hopeless. And what I never lost was at least a little teeny little bit of hope. And that's what kept me coming back. Um, so thanks for sharing, Harry. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name's Lee, and I'm a real psychoholic. And uh, Gary, I really appreciate uh, your share. It was a great, uh, serene narrative of a horrible experience. And uh, I, <laughs> it, made, it made it easier to listen to. I was, uh, you know, I, I related to that low bottom stuff. I, I, in natural, we sometimes say we were given the gift of desperation mm. uh, to come into. So I, I, the gift of desperation saved my life. And I think I, I heard some of that in their share. It was, and, and I came in with this profound sense of loneliness, which I subsequently have noticed that it was not for lack of love. It was for lack of being able to experience and accept it. And in looking back in my recovery, and the question is, uh, I, I I got started acting out when I was five years old, masturbating, and it soon became compulsive. But what that did is that made me so ashamed and afraid that I shut off any relationship, honesty, or even contact. I wouldn't let people touch me uh, early on. And for until I got in recovery. And so my sex addiction was really what started and fed my loneliness uh, because it was quite early. Uh, how much do you think your sex, sexaholism uh, contributed to your loneliness over and above uh, the realities in your house? Mine happened to be a very loving household, which I shut out of my life. Uh, what do you think the effect of sexaholism was on your loneliness? That's, that's the question. I believe that, see, I, I don't think sexaholism is just, okay, I'm a sexaholic, I act out sexually. Sexaholism it is the disease, the spiritual disease below the symptoms. The symptoms are what you do out on the street. And then sexaholism is everything. And it, it's, it's a very deep, deep spiritual problem. Um, and for me, the loneliness came because I was shut down. I was, I was inaccessible. When... Um, you know, before Roy died, he, he was very, very sick. And a lot of people didn't have access to him. So, But he called me on the phone. 
And the last thing Roy ever said to me was, Gary, I'm hard to get to know. Well, how long had he been sober? And, and how much experience did he have in the program? Well, more than anybody else. And he said, I'm hard to get to know. Then he paused. There's a silence. And then he goes, just like you. And I thought, oh, no, I've been sober and I'm still hard to get to know. Because I, I keep people away. I don't share things that they want to know. I, they, people have even told me they've known that they wouldn't get to know me because of the way I acted or whatever. And so I, I'm sure that I contributed to my loneliness by missing the signals that people love me and by, you know, wrapping myself up in some kind of isolation to protect myself. Lee, I hope that is some kind of an answer. It's a great response. And I thank you. I, I couldn't agree more. So uh, me, I'm very much like that. So thank you very much. Thanks, Luke. I'm Rob. I'm sexaholic. I'm just doing some DIY work here in my house. <laughs> but Gary, it was really good listening to you. And I could have listened to you all evening. It was just very therapeutic. You know, I'm painting while I'm listening. And um, it's me in this room listening to your share and, you know, just your experience and the peace and serenity that came from your talk. Not so much the words, but just, I suppose, the way it was carried. And, yeah, I've experienced that um, love of the fellowship that you spoke of very early on. And it brings me great joy. You know, that's I was always looking for love in the wrong places and could never understand why I couldn't get that connection. But in SA, I've, I've found that this is the true connection. This is the real connection that I, that I can't get anywhere else. And really, it's the it's my higher power working through other people. And to have, I suppose, the, the length of sobriety that we do in the fellowship around the world. but all, And it's also still quite a new fellowship. But the depth and the wisdom, you know, is just, it's wonderful, really. You know, I have a number of, my sobriety day is the 1st of April 2016. And when I came into my home group, you know, I was, I was loved until I got well, you know, and, and I really did not want to love. I found it very difficult, actually. Um, but I have two beautiful kids. I have a peaceful home and I have sexual sobriety. And you spoke about the, the, the disease of sexaholism rather than just the, the loud, noisy acting out. It's the real spiritual emptiness and hunger that I had long before I ever started looking at images or, um, pictures or getting into relationships. So the steps address that. And that's really, as they say, we have to find what, what our lust is really looking for. And I have found that in SA, you know, it's a connection with God. So I'm grateful to be here, Gary, and wonderful to listen to you. Thanks. Yeah, hi, I'm Nancy. I'm sexaholic. I hope my dog doesn't bark in the background. Thank you so much for your talk. And I really, really, it's just wonderful, um, the peacefulness, the peacefulness um, behind your words. I can relate to being in the program for six years. Um, why did I keep coming back and, and, you know, not ever putting together sobriety? I don't know. Maybe I thought I belonged. 
when I had belonged other places. Um, you talked about even, um, at least that you had said to Roy, of course, he's been gone for a number of years now. Are you continuing to grow in letting people in to your life? And how do you go about doing that is my question. I, um, that's a hard question. I, I, I don't isolate myself. I, I mean, it's hard during the quarantine in, in, in particularly in California, we have stringent rules about things. And so it's easy to isolate, but um, I, I try not to isolate. And I, when someone asks for something, and it's within my power to give it to them. I try to do that. When I'm invited somewhere, if if it's possible, I try to go just to go. And uh, but my going is different than it used to be. Um, I I don't go to get something. I go to give something. It's just there's something. Um about that attitude that helps me share myself with people when it's appropriate. I mean, um, and I don't lecture people or preach sermons or teach lessons. Uh, I, I try to share my experience and, and, uh, you know, in a lot of settings, people go, Oh, nobody would ever do that. Or no, this has never happened. Nobody would think about this. I said, well, I have, I have, I've done that. I thought about that and not to shock them or, you know, to upset a conversation, but when it's appropriate to say, I've, I've done that. I've been there. And, and then there's, the, there's just practicing the principles of this program will definitely change relationships because I've had to share things with my sponsor that I thought I couldn't say. And then I could say things to other people in the program that I thought I couldn't say. And then I found myself sharing things with people outside the program. And so there's, there's sort of a ripple effect. If I will take the actions in the steps, then I'll begin to relate to people differently in an ever widening circle that can reach, you know, the grocery store or the church or the synagogue or the um, football diamond, a- anything. It can go anywhere. It, is that an answer to your question? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Nancy. Yes. Hi, Gary. Uh, thank you very much. I missed you here in Europe. So sorry for it. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, it's a bit like, yes, there are people like in the grocery store and so on, but there are also women on the streets <laughs> or in <laughs> they're waiting for lovely men. And what are you doing? Uh, perhaps are you, are you also have some experience in um, dating and how, how are you doing it? Thank you. Can you can you ask that question again, please? Or? Yeah. What are you doing? Or did you do some dating with women in this program? Okay. okay. 
Um, during during the, our quarantine, there isn't very there aren't opportunities for that. Um, there's no place to go. There's other people don't. Some women don't associate with people outside of their households or things like that. But um, there is there is a woman who lives maybe thirty miles away from me, and we have known each other for a long time, and. You know, I I promised her that I would cook dinner for her um, because she loves fish and she doesn't get opportunities to eat fish so much. And anyway, that's that. Um, I have found myself saying the most amazing things to women. Um, I worked in a retail setting in a store, a shop, and a woman came in two or three times and I told her, and I don't believe I said this, I can't. I don't know where it came from. I said, you know, I would like to talk to you sometime about your life. And could we get coffee sometime? <laughs> and I just thought, Gary, did you say that? <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, we did. And, and I, I determined very quickly that this was not a relationship that was going to work because she said, you know, you need to stop going to those meetings. You don't need to go to those meetings. I don't know why you continue to go to them. And, and uh, she also, she was a widow. And she had two children that she had adopted when she was married. And she had discussed marriage, or excuse me, adoption with her husband but an adoption agency called her and said, I have two, uh, a brother and a sister. Would you take them? And she just goes, yes, of course. And she told her husband, we now have two children. When you come home, we're going to have two children. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound like a partnership to me. And I, in the past, I would have just stayed, just stayed. I, what's wrong with, what's wrong with her telling her husband we're going to have two children immediately? Um, and what's wrong with her telling me that I shouldn't go to meetings? I have, there's certain things that I need in my life. I need essay. I need the meetings. Um, and I need a partnership, not, you know, somebody that I'm going to live with is going to tell me how to live. You're going to live with these two children. I, I need a part. So I was able to say, no, I don't think this is going to work. And, uh, and then there was another woman who I really enjoyed. And, and uh, I noticed in her kitchen, she had lots of alcohol. Didn't bother. I'm an alcoholic. It didn't bother me. You know, maybe she drinks. But she called me one day to ask me what I was doing. And we had a discussion about religion. And she had a position, and I had another one. And she said, do you think what I'm doing is wrong? And in the past, I've never been honest. I wouldn't have said yes, and I did. I said, yes, I do. But the whole conversation was based on the concept that I was exploring changing my position. 
I'm reading a book. I'm open to change. But she forced the issue and asked me point blank, do you think what I'm doing is wrong? And I said, yes. And that was the end of it. She said, she told me, you don't watch television. You don't go to movies and something else. And so we can never be any more than friends. And I thought, okay, I don't understand why she would say that. I love movies. And I have an impression in my hand where the remote control for the television goes. And my fingers know exactly where to, which buttons to hit. So I, I do like television. I don't watch it very much and I don't go to movies because I don't have time but I enjoy them that's fine so yes there's dating but um, there's honesty now there's uh, honesty about what I want I what I need and things like that so thank, thanks for asking I needed to be reminded <laughs> By the way, my nephew lives in Nuremberg, and uh, he married his professor's daughter in college. He went to Tübingen. Wow. And uh, so he's, he's there, and he's thoroughly German now, thoroughly. And his children are thoroughly German. <laughs> so good to see you. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.